several, um, a few years ago, I, I did a, a funeral service, and um, now that, that, that funeral service was um, for someone that I never met. And I've done that a number of times over the years as a pastor because um, I, I believe that's a great ministry. Um, I have a, a relationship long going back many years with most of the funeral directors um, here in the Poconos. And from time to time, they'll have a family that um, comes to them for a funeral and wants, wants a service, but they're not connected with the church. They have no, no pastor to turn to, but they want a pastor there that day. So he'll say, well, I, I can call a couple of pastors to see if they're willing to do it. That'd be okay. They say, sure. So I've done that. And, and usually I don't even meet the people till I get there. Sometimes I might have a phone number I can talk with um, someone in the immediate family, a son or daughter or a husband or wife, whoever, of the loved one who's gone, and just get a little bit of an idea of their story. But then I'll go in and lead the service. Now, most funerals, whether it's those or ones where it's someone from, from our congregation or from the Bartonsville Church, um, or just a funeral that I attend, uh, you know, as, as, uh, from my family or friends, most of the time, the immediate family doesn't say much at a funeral service. You, there might be one or two who are ready and willing to do it, um, but I think for a whole lot of reasons. Uh, for one thing, people... Uh, don't like speaking in public in general, especially in that circumstance. And, and others, the, the emotions are very, are very raw, and it's hard to, to speak in that moment. They don't, they don't want to break down in front of people. All that is very understandable. So it's very normal that there's you know, little, if any, people from the immediate family who speak about the person. So what, what does happen is friends, or maybe extended family, or People from the community will, will say a word when the opportunity is given. And almost every time, you'll hear a story from someone that the family barely knows that came to the service that wanted to pay their respects and say, I just want to say something about how this man or this woman touched my life, did something beautiful and tangible. And maybe the family is aware of it, maybe they didn't know the detail, but, but those words really touch people at a deep place. And that's one of the, one of the, the reasons to have funeral services, is, is to come together and support one another and then hear the stories of how that person's life has helped other people, touched other people, gone out beyond the, the, the ways that, that the family may not even know about. And it's very encouraging. And Linda was with me at one such service, and she said to me sometime later, he said, you know, I, never, I literally didn't know anyone in that room except you, Paul. And when that person shared that story, it brought tears to my eyes. Because it, it, it touches our heart when we help people. And that's why I began with the children today about the poor and the needy and describing widows and, and, the, and the, the difficulty of, of living in Bible times if you were a widow, the challenges you face. In, in today's world, um, I think we often we'll think of single moms, and certainly that's, that's difficult um, in, in most situations if you're a single mother. 
uh, whether it is from divorce or separation or you know the death of of, of the husband. But um, that can be a very very uh, hard hard road to live. And um, so today we're going to talk about widows a little bit in a passage that doesn't seem to start there. And what I want you to see today is um, God's big picture plan to reach the world never loses sight of the one. I'm going to say that again. God's big picture plan to reach the world never loses sight of the one. This photo I have here is a, is, is a, a sheep presumably lost, and we think about what Jesus says, that the good shepherd will leave the 99 of the flock of 100, and one is missing, to go find the one. And that's always been at the heart of God. So we're going to begin today with a a big picture story, which is important, but then we're going to pull it back to a smaller and yet vital principle about remembering the one. Big picture. Saul learns how to temper his passion. He's eager to start and ready to learn. Now, in the previous verses of chapter 9, we have that familiar story of the apostle Paul, Saul at this point, and I'm going to say Saul and Paul interchangeably, not realize that I am, so I'm talking about the same person. At this point, technically, he is still Saul, okay? The change to Paul comes sometime later. But Saul's conversion was um, a very famous and well-known story from the Bible on his way to Damascus with, the, um, with papers in his hand from the high priest with the authority to arrest Christians in Damascus. And a bright light from heaven comes and the voice of Jesus with that light and he bows down, he's blind and why he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And that is the beginning of this incredible transformation, as dramatic a transformation of a person as you'll see anywhere in scripture or anywhere in literature. To, to go from the, the person that is most enthusiastically opposing and arresting believers in Jesus to becoming one himself, almost instantaneously. Three days blind in darkness, and then he realizes this is the path he has to go on. So let's pick it up at the middle of the 19th verse. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. So um, what he's doing here is he is right away preaching. Now, um, you know, let, me, let me back up one here. So what I put on the slide here is that Saul learns how to temper his passion. Do you know anyone in your life, anyone in your life who is a type A personality, a, a, a go-getter, a leader, and they don't like to let the grass grow under their feet, and let's go, come on. And if you're not with them, well, they'll just leave you behind and keep going. And sometimes they don't listen to other people very well because they've got the answers. And, and, so, and so that's, that's sometimes the downside of, those, of that, that person. And, and we need those people in our lives. Otherwise, nothing will get done, okay? We need somebody to take charge and go, all right? But they also need to recognize that, you know, not everyone's quite there. 
we're going in the right direction. Just, just wait for the help, okay? You're, you're up 5,000 feet up the mountain. They're at 500, okay? Just, just slow down. Let them catch up. Let them, you know, uh, see their place in this and teach them their place in this. That's kind of what Paul was here, okay? I said it already. Saul. That's what Saul was here. He just got converted to Christianity. Now he's going to preach it. And not that that was wrong, but he gets himself into trouble. Now he's going to get himself into trouble a lot in his future. And you may be familiar with, with times that he's arrested, he's in jail, he's beaten, he's left for dead. All that happened. And that was inevitable that it was going to happen. But just because he's prepared and willing to suffer doesn't mean you have to go out looking for it. <laughs> okay? Or doing things that are going to lead there. And so I think Saul had to learn that. But what is, is evident here, let's, let's pick it up now at the 21st verse. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised, who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priest? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, if you don't like maps, just bear with me here, okay? Um, this is helpful today because um, there, there's Jerusalem near the bottom on the right, and Damascus is up there. Now, this scale is helpful, which is why I picked this map. You know, if you use that scale, that is probably close to 200 miles, from Jerusalem to Damascus. That's, that's a pretty good journey, especially when there's no interstates, <laughs> especially when most people walk. And where they walk and what they walk on is hard, and it's difficult and sometimes dangerous. And so, so making that journey, you don't just decide one day, I'm going to go there, all right? So it's, and, and also that is the far northern border of, of the land of Israel, the homeland of, of the Jews. And you go much beyond that to the north and, and, and to the west, and now you're pretty much out of homeland, if you will. Okay? So, he's in Damascus. He has this experience of conversion. There wasn't a bunch of people in Damascus with their smartphones taking pictures of Saul preaching, sending word back to Jerusalem, look what's going on here! Word took a long time to get anywhere. So Paul is here, excuse me, Saul. Saul is here for a long time. He grew at, and more powerful and, and, and he's, um, he's growing. His, his, the respect for him as a believer is growing. And look what it says in 23. After many days had gone by, and I'll come back to it in a minute, and it's, it, well, it's actually on the screen, many days, we'll see what that is in a moment, there was a conspiracy to, among the Jews to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night and declared, excuse me, and, and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. This is one of those stories they use at, at uh, Bible school and Sunday school where the kids make, Linda would do this, okay? She, she, she'll have them make a craft with a little basket and a, and a string, and then they'll take them out. This is, this is, this is Saul in here. They're going to kill him, so they have to let him out this, this window opening in the wall and make sure he's okay so he can get away and, and not get hurt. And, you know, God helped him. But notice what it says there. His 
followers. Now, how long do you think it takes to have followers? And I don't even know social media, okay? <laughs> I mean, people that trust you, look up to you, even hang on your every word. That doesn't happen instantly. And he's a very passionate man. He's a good orator, speaker. So Saul built up an audience, people who were loyal to him to the point where they're going to defend his life. So this is months. Now, if you go to the end of the 25, they lowered him from the wall through the, on, on this basket. The 26th verse says this, when he came to Jerusalem, now let me stop there. That is three years between 25 and 26. Now, it doesn't say that in Acts. Now, and, and to be fair, Luke will sometimes give, give time cues, okay, about the passage of time or, or really more of a date when something happened. He's very good about that. Who was in power? Who was, who was the king? Who was the governor in various regions when something happened? He begins the Gospel of Luke with that, of course, with the story of Jesus and his birth. And so he doesn't do that here, and that's okay. But the reason that we know it was more time, if you go to Galatians chapter 1, in this letter to the churches in an area called Galatia, the apostle Paul at this point is, is, right, is telling his story in the letter. Okay? So he's telling the same story about his conversion, all right? And then he says this in the 17th verse of Galatians 1. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. There's the three years. Okay? So he is taking his time. He is learning. He is praying. He is preparing. And he didn't just go right to Jerusalem and expect those guys to trust him. And guess what? Three years went by, and they still weren't ready to trust him. But, but notice the circles on, on my map here. You have Jerusalem there, and then he was in Damascus, kind of in the middle. He went down to Arabia, that area, for a long time. He went back up to Damascus, and then finally to Jerusalem. So that, that's the time, the sequence, the travel of these, these verses right here. And then... When Saul finally got to Jerusalem, well, here's what happened. <clears throat> Down at 26th verse, back to Acts 9. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. Now consider this. This is three years later, and still they didn't trust him. He, his reputation about what he did before his conversion was very strong and powerful, and to a point you understand that. You know, they heard the stories, but now he's actually here. 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly. So he's still not afraid to speak. In the name of the Lord, he talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. So there he is again, getting his life on the line. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea 
and sent him off to Tarsus. I didn't put Caesarea on that map a moment ago. That was kind of above and to the left of Jerusalem. But in fact, I, I need to go back to just show you Tarsus. Way up there. That's where he was from. That's where he grew up. Okay, that is way out of Israel. All right, but all those city names you see, this is the Mediterranean Sea, and, and, and there are the, all those peninsulas on the north side of, of uh, the Mediterranean, and then eventually Italy and Rome over this way more. But Tarsus was a place where there was a Jewish synagogue. In fact, most of these cities had a Jewish population for centuries. And they were very devout Jews, and they would go back to Jerusalem when they could for Passover or the other feasts. So Saul was one of those people. But that's where he grew up. That's where he was from. And he went back there for a time, and we're not going to hear about Saul again for several chapters. Okay? But it's important to recognize all the time that has already passed here in the ninth chapter that you don't recognize. The time for him to grow and to learn and be ready for the amazing challenge, this big picture challenge that God has for him to do. The apostles didn't trust him. Barnabas mediated. Barnabas, he was introduced earlier in Acts. It says his name is uh, son of encouragement or an encourager. Do you have encouragers in your life? Do you have people that go to you and come to you and are ready to, hey, hang in there. Come on, you got this. It's okay. And I hope you are that to someone else too. I think um, most of the spiritual gifts, by the way, are something that we, we all have or all understand, all can participate in. Like there is a spiritual gift of encouragement, okay? Well, that doesn't mean that if I don't have that gift, I should never encourage anyone, <laughs> okay? But it means that some people, it just comes more naturally. It just flows out of them. A, a, a very encouraging person can walk into a room and people feel better even before they say a word, <laughs> okay? Their, their presence carries with them something, okay? So, so Barnabas was like that. And Barnabas knew that the apostles weren't ready to... to welcome Saul and were afraid of him, but he, in time, worked, their, worked, their, worked with their fears, had them lessen their fears. Look, give the man a chance. Meet him. And they did, and it went better. And he spoke boldly, he got in trouble, and then he goes to Tarsus for his own safety. So this was the big picture. This, this man, Saul, was amazing transformation. Hated Christians, arrested them, some of them got killed, and wanted to do that for the rest of his life as needed. And then he's turned around completely. And I was one of them. Now we go into a seemingly unrelated story. Let's pick it up at the 32nd verse. It's almost like, meanwhile, okay, so the scene shifts, you go to somewhere else. Meanwhile, Peter traveled about the country. He went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up, and all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Lydda is a city uh, east of Jerusalem toward the Mediterranean, but not quite there. And 
This is very similar to a miracle that Jesus did with a man who lived on his mat because he was paralyzed. And if you remember the story from Luke 5, he saw the man and said, your sins are forgiven before he healed him. And the Pharisees, hearing Jesus say that, said, what do you mean forgive? Only God has the power to forgive. You can't do that. And Jesus said, what's, more, what's harder for, for me to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up or take, take your mat and go home. And he looked at him and he said that. And the man got up, took his mat and went home, rolled up his mat. And, and the reason Jesus said that is that you don't need that anymore. As a paralyzed man, that was the place you lived. That was the place you always were. That was your identity, that mat as for a paralyzed person. But you don't need it anymore, so don't go back there. You're changed. And he was, and he was healed, and he could walk, he could run, he could dance, he was thrilled. So here's Peter, years later, encountering a paralyzed man. And he says to that paralyzed man, the Lord has healed you. Now roll up your mat and get up. Same instruction. Peter learned from the master. And, and it had the same impact. When Jesus would go to town and perform miracles, the, quite often it, the gospel writers would say, and, and, and the whole town turned to God, and the whole town was transformed. Um, you, I said often, I think my favorite gospel story of that kind is, is, the, is the woman at the well in the Samaritan village, that, you know, a place that they weren't even welcomed. And, and it actually really wasn't a miracle involved there in terms of, of a healing, but it was just his knowledge about her and, and the fact that he didn't judge her. Even though she had a bad reputation, a bad life, they, the whole city was thrilled and begged him not to leave. A Jewish man in the Samaritan village. So, so here's Peter doing something very similar. And then there's, there's, there's one more story to wrap up this ninth chapter. I think this is the heart of the story. And uh, it's about someone named Tabitha. Picks it up at the 36th verse. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, he sent two men to him and urged him, please, come at once. Peter went with them. And when he arrived, he was taken upstairs into the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. He got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. So much in that story. Big picture, God has called Saul. Saul has a lot of work to do to reach the world, to reach the Gentile world. And he did so in the future. 
But he also had something for Peter to go back and take care of. And it's good that Peter got out of Jerusalem and he was going to these towns and these, so these, these miracles could happen, these towns could be turned. But God had something that Peter needed to do. Now Joppa is further west from Lydda. It's on the coast, so it's a port city in the Mediterranean. And it says that this woman, Tabitha, was always doing good and helping the poor. And the widows in particular in that city were so appreciative of her and were so distraught when she died because of all that she did for them. Like the stories at the funeral I began this message with. about Now, Paul, Peter doesn't know any of these people, but his heart is going out to these women and, and so appreciative of all that Tabitha did and, and all that she meant to, to this whole town, especially to these, these women, especially these women in the church. And remember, although there was a church there, again, not a building, but a, a, a group of believers, enough that they would get together and help one another, they were still most likely in the minority in that town as well. But there was enough of them that the needs of whatever number of widows were being met, largely due to the efforts of someone named Tabitha, and now she is gone. And all the widows stood around him crying. So he goes into the room, and then another story comes to mind. Another way in which he, he learned from Jesus if you go to the 8th chapter of Luke, and it's a, it's a long chapter, you're going to jump all the way down to the 40th verse. And it says this, When Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because only his daughter... His only daughter, a girl about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds crushed him. And it goes on to talk about the, the woman with, with a bleeding issue that touched him, and, he, and she was healed, okay? But then let me, let me jump down to 49 now, all right? While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except who? Peter and John and James and the child's mother and father. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, child, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, and he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. So here's Peter, a beloved woman, much older than the child, obviously, but dearly loved. And he goes into the room by himself, apparently, and he prays. Because Jesus taught him what to do in that moment. Maybe he says a prayer the way Jesus said it, but, but certainly the same faith was there. That's what matters. And this woman is brought back to life. 
And then listen what happens next. He calls for the believers, and it says in the text here, especially the widows. When he heard the widow's stories before he went into that room and raised this woman to life, they touched his heart. And as soon as she was alive again, the first people that needed to know was those widows who brought those robes and those blankets and those things that she gave for them and made for them with all of her heart so their life would be a little bit easier, a little more comfortable. And he told them. Now why are widows so important in Peter? And I mentioned this a few weeks ago. And, and I, I still believe this, and we see it even more as we go forward. In the sixth chapter of Acts, at the beginning of that chapter is when uh, the church was growing like crazy, and there were thousands of Christians in Jerusalem, and the apostles were running all of this, and they, they were getting overwhelmed, and there was this dispute about some widow's needs that were, weren't being taken care of. And so they chose seven people to do that, but it's not so much that they... Ask more people to help. It's what they said. And this, this is back in the, in the sixth chapter. Um, oops, I'm in the wrong one. That was Luke. If you go to, to um, Acts chapter 6, <clears throat> this is where you find that story. And it says in the second verse, and it doesn't say which of the apostles is saying this, Okay. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. I still believe that's not the heart of God. That's not who Jesus taught them to be. The same, their, 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 their master is Jesus, the one who said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. The, the, the one who said, you know, to, to put the poor first. The one who did that, not just said it again and again. Now, did they need to get more help? Yes. But I think his, whether it was Peter or the other disciples, those words, wait on tables, almost makes that look like it's secondary, like of lesser importance. Yes, they need to preach. Get the word out. Amen. Do it. But don't stop doing that. And at some level, God wanted Peter to continually be directly involved with the poor, such as the widows. And he leads him to a place named Joppa to give him that reminder, to give him that lesson. Because now, wow, look at how this woman's life touched so many people. And his heart went out to them, and he was so happy that God acknowledged his faith by bringing that beloved woman back to life to touch those very sad and distraught widows because they are the people who come first. The last shall be first. So I hope this story today is, is, is a reminder that God's big picture plan to reach the world, and it is big picture, and it still carries on to this day. And that's important, and we all need to participate in that and kind of see what God is doing uh, in the world, in our nation, in our community. But the closer it gets to home is where it's most important because those are the places we can and should be impacting with the love of God through tangible things like providing meals on a Saturday night for anyone who'd like one. 
Things like preparing Thanksgiving meals and Christmas meals in the next two months for people. Things like going out to see the, the folks in nursing homes and, and brightening their day a little bit and just letting them know there's people that care. And, and, and other ways that I know many of you do in your own lives on a personal level that you're, you're not looking for thanks or gratitude or accolades. You're just doing God's work. Keep it up. Keep an eye on what God's doing in the big picture and be a part of that. But the way you be a part of that is to carry out the things he's called you to do. Because even great Peter, the leader of the apostles, the leader of the early church, had to be taught a lesson about remembering the widows. And he did, and he obeyed. Father, thank you for your word. Let it go forth in our hearts and our lives. And let us always remember the people who are in need around us and to do what we can to help. In your name, amen.